And we have a message to talk about today. Who fed the 5,000? How many of you did your homework and went home and looked up the biblical account of the feeding of the 5,000? Anybody do it? Well done, good and faithful servant. Good for you. Yes. Um, well, that means good. You haven't discovered the answer yet, so there's still a lot more that we can cover today. Uh, but before we dive into our study, of course, we want to dedicate ourselves to the Lord in prayer. So if you would just briefly bow your heads with me as we get started this afternoon. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for this just gorgeous day. I want to thank you for the food that everyone's able to eat right now and ask that you would bless it to our nourishment and strength. And Lord, I would ask that you sharpen our minds and at the same time soften our hearts to not only understand your word, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, since the conviction of our role in your work, and Lord, help us to yield to that, that influence and be converted to be more like Jesus. So now as we study, Lord, be our teacher today, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Who fed the 5,000? We'll start in Matthew chapter 4 today, where Jesus begins picking up some of his earliest disciples. Now we noticed that yesterday when we noticed how Jesus picked up the disciples and the disciples told other people and they came and saw Jesus. But notice what Jesus started his very, very first disciples. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me. But he didn't just stop it with follow me. He said, and, or in addition to merely following me around, he says, I will do what? Make you fishers of men. He didn't say, I will just simply show you fishing for men. He said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Let's be clear from the outset. Well, in my own life, I have, I guess, subconsciously wondered, why did Jesus even have disciples? Why did he go and gather up, you know, a little cadre of individuals to follow him around? Why did he have to have, like, a crew, a gang, a bunch of people just with him? Why? Did he just want witnesses? And, and that's the answer I've heard, is that he needed people to witness his actions so that when he left, like I said in Acts, that they will be witnesses. But it does not seem that just merely collecting a group of bystanders who witnessed or watched Jesus' work was what he had in mind. You see it right here. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. When these disciples left their nets and started following Jesus, they were signing up for a training course in ministry. They were not just watching someone minister, they were training to be ministers themselves. Okay? They immediately left their nets and followed him. And from that initial calling of these disciples and his explanation of what his expectation was to make you fishers of men, you will see this theme throughout the life and ministry of Jesus, that he didn't just come to do work, but to train workers, right? He didn't just come to minister, but to actually train ministers, to make them fishers of men. And it, with that mindset, as you read through the gospel accounts of Christ's ministry and his work here on earth, you'll notice that just like we mentioned yesterday, most of the stuff that Jesus does, he doesn't do personally or directly. He has his created beings do it for him. Now, we left off yesterday with the prayer that Jesus left us as a template that we should pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy will be, your kingdom come, thy will be done. How? On earth as it is, where? 
in heaven. So Christ, as we looked at the ministry of angels, had always had a large group of people around him, but they weren't just watchers, they were workers, right? And now Christ has come here, and his goal is to let God's kingdom be here, and that method of operation be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it should be no little wonder at all that when Jesus arrives, he doesn't just go to work himself, he immediately starts training others. Are we together so far? Does this make sense? Now let's think about this as well. Christ's ministry, his public ministry, was how long? Three and a half years. That's a short stay for a pastor in any church. And he was here publicly ministering for only three and a half years. He only had this amount of time to accomplish all, which of course was to reveal the character of Satan and demonstrate the character of God. That was a big part of his life experience. He also wanted to be a substitute and sacrifice for the sinners who needed to be saved. But beyond that, he always kept in mind that after his departure, a church would be built in his name. And so what he was doing was establishing from the very first steps of his ministry, training, mentoring, equipping, instructing those who would lead the church after his departure. He didn't come here just to do ministry, but to train ministers. Notice this as we go forward. Notice in Matthew chapter 3, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. If you just read that passage alone, you would assume that Jesus did what action? Baptized people. Now it also adds, Now John was also baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. So for a little window of time, there was Jesus ministering down by the water, and according to this passage, baptizing people. And just across the way, nearby, John the Baptist, his ministry, of course, was on the decline. Christ was on the incline. But for a little window, a little Venn diagram, they overlapped, and it says that both were baptizing. So the picture that probably comes to your mind is John the Baptist is there preaching and preaching and preaching and people would come to repentance and confession and they would lay them down in the grave of water because there's much water there and they would rise up. And so he was preaching and baptizing. And the same picture could be in your mind about Jesus, that he's there preaching and baptizing. But watch what the context continues to tell us. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, then look at this statement that's inserted. Though Jesus himself did not, what? Baptize. But his disciples. Jesus didn't baptize anybody. But the credit goes to him for baptizing people. Why? We studied it yesterday. Because this is how God works. And he wants his work on earth to be done like it is in heaven. So he has his disciples training them for ministry. They're listening to him preach and they're practicing baptism. Okay? He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Let's look at some more examples. Luke chapter 9. And again, remember, Jesus only had three and a half years of ministry here. You would assume that you want to sit at his feet and soak up every word and not miss a moment that you have in the presence of Jesus. But watch what Jesus does with his disciples in Luke 9. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now, up until that point, Jesus had been preaching the, God, the, the kingdom of God and healing the sick. 
But now he calls the 12 to himself and says, all right, guys, you've seen and heard and been part of all that I've been doing. Now I'm going to give you authority to do the same type of ministry. Now go. So for a certain amount of time, Jesus was without his disciples. Why? Because they were going outside of the classroom to put into practice the lessons he had taught them. He sends them out on a practice run, an apprenticeship, if you will. That's Luke 9. In Luke chapter 10, he sends out even more people. It says, after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two. Now notice where he sends them. Before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Now, why would Christ send people to a place he himself was just about to go? Why not just go himself and save the hassle? Okay, prepare the way is a good answer. I think there's something even more practical than that. He's going to check on their work. Let's send them out. You do your work in my name, just like I sent the other 12 out, and you're gonna, I'm going to send you to all the places I just happen to be going after this. So I'll come around. If there were any errors and any mistakes, we'll talk about it. But he's going to kind of basically put them into a real-life scenario of ministry, and Christ would check on them. And then he explained why he was doing this. And this is a pivotal point. Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the what? Laborers are few. Christ was concerned there's a great big work, but a lack of workers. So why was Christ doing all this, make you fishers of men, and you baptize them, and you go out and heal and teach and preach? Because he's trying to build up workers to work in his harvest field. The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. So what should we do? Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to slow down the growth. Is that what it says? Lord, the work is so big, please stop. (laughs) No, we should not be praying for a decrease of work. We should be praying for an increase of workers. This was what was on Christ's heart and mind. He said, this is my philosophy. The harvest is great, but the laborers are few. So you go out and practice and I'll come and back clean up and make sure everything's going okay. Okay. Which brings me to this point. Christ did not intend, by the way, this is the, there was an updated slideshow that did not get put into this, but there's a couple of statements from Acts of the Apostles that you'll have to look up at some point, okay? But basically, commenting on why Christ sent out laborers, first the 12 and then the 70, she explained that this was not some stopgap measure until we could build some large mammoth institutions and then we can make it all centralized. No. That this model of ministry of individual labor was to be replicated as the church grew and grew and grew until that model filled the whole earth. Individuals doing individual labor in the name of Jesus Christ. Christ did not intend for individual work to be merely a temporary necessity until the church grew large enough to establish mammoth institutions. Another statement I would share with you, I believe it's by page 147 from Ministry of Healing. She says, everywhere there's a tendency to centralization, to giving over the work of individual doing of good to committees and large institutions. And it's fascinating, 
One of the great things about the Seventh-day Adventist work in the world is we have a worldwide reach. We have educational institutions. We have health care provisions all over the world in different kinds of cities and, and environments. We have benevolent work. You can think of ADRA doing fantastic work around the world. And we have such large institutions, publishing houses. We have just a network of institutions which is a wonderful, tremendous blessing, but there's a danger in it, and it is this. That I don't have to go give help to my neighbor because we have Loma Linda. Right? I would go help, but, you know, I gave to Adra. Right? Now, there's nothing wrong with Loma Linda or Adra. I want to be clear about that. The philosophy behind him is fantastic. We should have more presence. We should do more things. I agree. With that. But that does not replace the individual's work for Jesus Christ. You still should go share bread with your neighbor. You should still go give a Bible to somebody, to someone who in darkness. You should be a minister for Jesus Christ, not just say, I'm part of a church that does ministry. Have you ever noticed that when we all do something, nobody actually does it? It makes me very antsy. I'll chair board meetings sometimes, and the whole board will say, yeah, yeah, we should do that. We're all on the same page. Amen. And I'm like, all right, who's going to actually call the person? Who's going to come, you know, unlock the door? <laughs> like, oh, oh, we didn't assign. Yeah. <laughs> Big work is done by little steps, by individuals doing things, right? And this is Christ's method that he was trying to instill into his laborers that he was building up in his ministry. Let's go into a couple examples of this. That God has a particular interest in individuals doing what they can for the Lord. I'm going to share with you two stories from the Bible you're likely very familiar with, and hopefully we can see them in a new light, understanding how Christ wants his work to go forward. We'll start in John chapter 11. This is the story of Lazarus. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Therefore the sister sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So Jesus was away from the city, receives the message that Lazarus was ill. And now notice the language here. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. So, now think about love, so. That sounds like John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave, right? He saw a need, and he addressed it. But watch very carefully. God loved Martha, and Mary, and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. He's like, oh, I'm so sad about that and just stopped. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Notice that there was a pause. He purposely did not act with urgency. And what was the reason? Because he loved. Now, that's weird. I love so much, I didn't come. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is what? Pause right there. What was Jesus waiting for? He was waiting for Lazarus to die because he loved him. 
weird. In fact, listen to Jesus' own statement. Lazarus is dead, and I am what? Glad. (laughs) Now, is he glad for Lazarus' sake? No. I'm glad for what? For your sakes, that I was not there. That you may what? Believe. Apparently, there was something that they needed to believe that they did not already believe, And Jesus said, I love these people too much. This is going to be a teaching moment for them. So I'm going to let Lazarus die. I'm glad I wasn't there so that you can have an opportunity to believe something you don't already see. Okay. Nevertheless, let us go to him. He said, Lazarus is dead. Now let's go. Upon the arrival, Martha says to Jesus, Lord... If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Does she believe that Jesus can heal the sick? Sure. Why did she write the letter? To get him to come there and heal him because he was sick. But Jesus got the letter, but because he loved so much, he says, "Mm -mm, let's let him die. Now let's go. And she comes with a complaint, a logical complaint. Lord, if you had been here... My brother would not have died. And then watch. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. It kind of gives you a little insight that she believes that Jesus can do miracles of healing the sick, but now the raising of the dead is beyond his power. He's got to tap into, you know, the real God. It seems, as we're going to see this, the disciples, the sisters, the onlookers, Everyone believes Jesus could heal the sick, but no one's quite sure about the raising the dead. Like they have him on a demigod kind of status. You're a quasi-god, you know, a sort of god, a kind of god. You're God-esque, but not the real thing. Jesus like, you all need to learn a lesson. Listen to the plain language. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. To which Jesus says to her, I am, what? The resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he shall live. Sometimes I think that we have a picture, in, at least this is in my mind, that most of these famous sayings of Jesus were always done like in a pasture with like sheep and children. And he was just like otherworldly, calm, And we like crochet them on a wall, you know. But I think Jesus was genuinely frustrated. He's like, I'm going to go raise him from the dead. Well, I know someday when God does it, you know, at the end, he's like, I'm the guy who's going to raise the dead then. Who do you think is coming? The voice of the archangel? That's me. I am the resurrection and the life. And I'm sure she's like, I know. Now, Mary's turn. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Is there any chance these ladies talked? (laughs) That they have the same issue with this Jesus who says he loves them? Still believes, could have been healed, but the raising of the dead? Don't know. 
Now look at the crowd. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? The disciples, Martha, Mary, the crowd, everybody thinks Jesus can heal. Nobody's sure about the raising of the dead. Jesus says, it's good that this happened. Now, then Jesus, he approaches the tomb, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said what? Take away the stone. Now, we go through all of that to lead up to this point. Everyone is doubting Christ's ability to do this miracle. Everybody is doubting his strength, his capacity to accomplish this great work. So what Christ has against him is the disciples, Martha, Mary, the onlookers, everybody thinks he's strong-ish, but not strong enough, right? And he walks up, and the very first obstacle he sees is this massive stone in front of the tomb. Now, if Jesus wants to demonstrate his strength, what should he do? Move the stone. And put on a show while you do it. Blow up the stone. Melt the stone. Do like some like lasers from the eyes. Like, do you believe me now? You know, like. But no, he strides up confidently to the grave that no one believes he can do anything about. And he walks up. And he said, could somebody get the... Could somebody... There's a big rock. I'm sure he didn't say like, eh. But in their minds, that's what they heard. Uh, can you get the big stone? Notice, Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench for he's been dead four days. Like, we all know you mean well, but let's not do this. It's going to be awkward and just nobody is a... Ugh. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe you would see the glory of God? Now move that rock. So they do. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Let's be clear, he didn't send somebody in to peck on Lazarus' shoulder and wake him up. Nobody can wake up the dead, but somebody can move the rock, right? He cries with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his faith was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Now, I don't know what picture you've had in your head, but I've, you go online and look for pictures of Lazarus sometimes. This is the closest thing I can get to accurate. There's pictures of him, like, striding out. <laughs> but the Bible specifically tells us what condition his body was still in. What was it? It was wrapped up. And it mentions the parts of his body, right? His hands and his feet were tied up and bound. Even his face was covered with a cloth. He was wrapped. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. How? <laughs> Have you ever stopped to consider? What are his options for mobility at this moment? Well, it, I've, I've sorted through it a few times. This is what I've come up with. And maybe you've got some other ideas, right? But he could like, some sort of like, shimmy. Or maybe he could, you know, Hop. 
Wouldn't it be great, by the way, the Bible says, and he who is dead hopped forth from the tomb. <laughs> and I suppose the least dignified of all is just, you know, <laughs> flop, roll, roll. But somehow he got out and Jesus looks at him and he says, hey guys, can somebody untie the man? Which begs the question, if you're going to go to all the trouble of raising the dead, why not just get rid of the wrappings too? But Jesus wanted to teach them a lesson. First of all, I think he wanted to show them what he could do. And second of all, I think he also wanted to show them what he wouldn't do. Now look at this statement. Oh, somehow we got it, we got it missed up in there. There's a great statement. Commenting on this in the desire of ages. Go home and look it up sometime. Mrs. White, through inspiration, talks about the motive of Jesus. Why did he do this? And she makes this simple statement. She says, what divine power can do. No, no, what human power can do. Divine power is not summoned to do. Think about that. What human power can do, divine power is not summoned to do. God's not going to do for you something he's given you the ability to do. So why didn't he move the stone? Because that's a thing people can do. Why didn't he unwrap the clock? Because that's a thing people can do. Why didn't he have somebody go peck on his shirt? Because that's a thing people can't do. God does the stuff God can do and gives you the power to do stuff you can do. This is how God works. Mark chapter 6, getting to our theme question, who fed the 5,000? When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread for they have nothing to eat. So uh, you know the context of the story. She's been preaching all day. They're hanging off every word. There's a huge crowd, and they've just forgotten to eat. Have you ever been in a position where you just forgot to eat? Sometimes, it takes, for me, it's a, it's, you gotta, it's, it's a lot, you know. But you can get there, right? You just, oh man, where'd the time go? And this is what everybody had that day. They didn't even think about food. They were with Jesus. But Jesus, instead of sending them away, said, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is another moment. Let's use this to teach. But he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? I'm guessing sassing Jesus is the wrong idea. But Jesus kindly refrains. He says, But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? He's like, Why don't you just start with what you've got? Have you even looked around? Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. I'm guessing when they came back with five and two fish, their thinking was like, all right, now we're off the hook. We can't possibly do this. Game over. Send them home. Kind of a, see, I told you so. But Jesus wasn't satisfied with that quitter mentality. He said, why don't we start with what you've got and then see what God can do beyond that? Watch this now. 
Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. Now the Bible says that there were 5,000 men besides women and children, so likely that number was closer to 10,000 individuals there that day. And they have been listening to one man speak all day long. So if Jesus wanted them to sit down, what would be the simplest, most succinct, most effective way to accomplish that goal? For him to stand up and say, everybody, sit. It would have taken seconds. But look what he does instead. Notice his command. He's like, you give them something to eat. It's like, this is going to be a training exercise for you. So what does he say? He commanded them to make them all sit down. Now, if that was the only thing, I'm guessing it would be Peter who says, all right, I got this, guys. I know how to do it. Hey, everybody, sit. And it would have been accomplished. But just sitting down is not his only goal. Notice what it says. Make them all sit down. How? In groups. Now, how big were the groups? Hundreds and in fifties. Now, that's going to take some time. Have you ever been in a big group and you've got to organize a thing? They do icebreakers, right? Get yourself from tallest to shortest, from youngest to oldest, from whatever. I mean, nothing against icebreakers, but okay. There's only so many times I can line up. But, but here he has them get in groups. Now, if they've got five to 10,000 people there, getting in groups of hundreds and in fifties is going to take some time. It's going to be a thing. But notice there's something else added there also. So they sat down how? In ranks. When you hear about doing something in ranks, what comes to your mind? Hopefully, like in my mind, it's like, like the military and an organization and like there's a hierarchy and there's a chain of command and there's a structure and there's a leadership and there's followers and there's a whole... He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to have them sit. First of all, I want you to make them sit. And then I want you to put them in groups, and I want those groups to be organized in ranks. Why? Why go to all this? Just going to take forever. If his only goal is to get food in people's hands, couldn't he have just said, everyone, sit and hold out your hands and watch this? And he'll pray and all of a sudden, Pwing, <laughs> loaves and fishes for everybody. But just feeding the people wasn't his goal. His goal was to train his disciples of how to organize a church that would go in his name after he left. He's like, all right, you got five to 10,000. Not to give anything away, but there was a time coming in the near future when they were going to add 3,000 people to the church in one day. They're going to have to manage thousands of people without Jesus there to tell them what to do. He says, we need to train you now. Make them sit down. In groups, in ranks. Desire of Ages 369. In Christ's act of supplying the temporal necessities of a hungry multitude is wrapped up a deep spiritual lesson for all his workers. This is supposed to be a template and a lesson for the church. And here's the answer to our question. By the way, if the answer is God fed the 5,000, you're right. If it's Jesus, you're right. If it's the disciples, you're right. But there's one step that we sometimes forget. Why do you think they were lined up in ranks? Because 
picture that I have, I'm going to take it off the screen, you're going to cheat. <laughs> Some of you already have speed readers. The picture I had was that Jesus prayed, and he reaches into the basket, and he just gives the disciples, and the multitude is standing, and there's kind of all milling about, and the disciples are just running around willy-nilly handing out bread. Which, by the way, again, Google the images, that's what most people think it was. But he had them sit them down in manageable small groups of 50s and 100s with ranks involved so that when the disciples received from Jesus, what would they do? They would take some to each group leader, right? And then what would the leader do? Distribute it and pass it down the line. And they were probably organized within that, right? There was a structure. There's a hierarchy. There's ranks. Watch this now. Christ received from the Father, watch the chain of command, he imparted to the disciples, they imparted to the multitude, and look at this next step, and the people to one another. In a group of five to 10,000 people, I'm going to take a wild stab that the vast majority of people that day were fed and never came into direct contact with Jesus or his disciples. Where did they get the bread of life that day? From each other. God was trying to train up a mentality that could build a church full of workers and not merely full of watchers. So all, here's the lesson, so all who are united to Christ will receive from him the bread of life, the heavenly food, and impart it to others. What Christ did as a model minister was not simply to do all the work himself, but to train workers because the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Which brings me to our closing text today. So one of the last promises in all the book of Revelation. And I have a feeling, I know I've misread it for pretty much all of my life, and maybe you have too. But look carefully what it says. The great invitation of salvation in Jesus Christ. It says, in the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Did you catch it? It does not say, and the spirit and bride say, come, and let him who hears come. It said, he who hears the invitation to come should then turn around and say to someone else, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come. In God's work, he expects anyone who receives to immediately turn around and give. Salvation in Jesus Christ is not something that you merely receive. It's something you transmit to others once you've seen it for yourself. Okay? Look at this comment. Not upon the ordained minister only rests the responsibility of going forth to fulfill this commission. Now, I know that's a loaded word right now, ordination. to ministry. I'm not going there except to say this. There's a concept going around that we need more ordained ministers so that we can get the work done. God never intended that the work of sharing the gospel should be alone resting on the ordained ministers. Not upon the ordained minister alone less responsibility going forth to fulfill this commission. As soon as we start thinking, oh, you know what we need? We've got all these souls to win. You know what we need? A pastor. No. 
We need dedicated lay people who will go and spread the gospel one by one. Everyone who has received Christ is called to work for the salvation of his fellow men. Quoting Revelation 22, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who heareth say, Come. The charge to give this invitation includes the entire church. Everyone who has heard the invitation is to echo the message from Hill and Valley, saying, Come. This was the model ministry that Christ came to establish. Because the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Let me tell you, friends, right here in Southern California, there are plenty of people who do not know Jesus, don't know he's coming soon, don't know the present truth for this time. And there's plenty of people who do. The harvest is great, but the laborers are still few. Let me challenge you. And we're going to get more specific with this challenge as we go through the rest of the week. Do not settle for being merely a member of a church. Be a missionary for Jesus Christ and go win a soul and hasten his soon coming. Let me ask you a question. Has today's presentation made sense? Was it clear? Praise God for that. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for giving us your word and showing us how you work. In heaven, you work through the ministry of angels. And it is your prayer that that same ministry reflected here on the earth. Lord, and when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he didn't come just to minister, but to train workers for his cause, who would in turn train other people, so that the whole world would be filled, not with grand institutions alone, but individual laborers, who one by one would win one soul, and then one more soul, and one more soul to his kingdom. Lord, if we have settled for a model that is not biblical, forgive us, train us, equip us, and send us forth as laborers into your harvest. We pray this in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.